0: Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.
1: God, thank you for seeing us. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for the life that we get to share together in the good and in the bad, in the death and in the life. Amen. And please be seated. Today marks the first Sunday in Lent, and we are jumping into a new sermon series. The series is titled, Stories of Disappointment. About this series we write, the word disappointment refers to the sorrow that we often feel as a result of our unfulfilled hopes or expectations. But is sorrow the only outcome of disappointment? According to the season of Lent and Way of Jesus, difficult human experiences, even death itself, are imbued with unexpected surprises and possibilities. During the season of Lent, we'll explore the life of Moses and his many disappointments. We'll make space to lament our own experiences of disappointment while being intentional to consider the possible gifts that disappointment affords. Our desire is that this series grows our capacity to hold both sorrow and hope in the midst of the sincere disappointment that we all encounter. Disappointment, dismay, dispiritedness, despondency, distress, disenchantment, disillusionment, displeasure, discontent, dissatisfaction, disgruntlement. Disappointment. We know this noun and its many facets well, don't we? To be disappointed is to be human. It's a common experience for us all. In his book, Consolations, the solace, nourishment, and underlying meaning of everyday words, the marvelous poet and author David White tackles one word at a time, taking sometimes two, three, maybe four pages to delve into the depth of a word. About this word, disappointment, White explains, The attempt to create a life devoid of disappointment is the attempt to avoid the vulnerabilities that make conversations of life real, moving, and lifelike. It is the attempt to avoid our own necessary and merciful heartbreak. What we call disappointment may be just the first stage of our emancipation into the next greater pattern of existence. I love that paragraph. The great question in disappointment is whether we allow it to bring us to ground, to a firmer sense of self, a surer sense of our world, and what is good and possible for us in that world. Disappointment is a friend to transformation, a test of sincerity, and a catalyst of resilience. Disappointment is just the initial meeting with the frontier of an evolving life, an invitation to reality, which we expected to be one particular way, but turns out to be another, often sometimes more difficult, more overwhelming, and strangely, in the end, more rewarding. Disappointment according to White, a difficulty and a gift. An opaque moment imbued with the possibility of dazzling clarity if, and I think that's huge here, if we're brave enough to look it in the face. And that's our hope throughout the season of Lent, to explore the many disappointments in the life of Moses as a means to consider our own multifaceted disappointments. We intend to stare them down, We intend to cut them open and to grieve, yes, grieve, but also our hope is to learn, maybe even grow, possibly expand ourselves as humans in this world. Throughout the life of Moses, we'll consider the disappointment of abandonment, the disappointment of inadequacy, the disappointment of outcomes, the disappointment of people, the disappointment of God, and the disappointment of endings. The disappointment of abandonment. That's where we're going to begin today, in abandonment. Abandonment is defined as the action or fact of abandoning or being abandoned. Don't you love definitions like that? (laughs) They're super helpful. (laughs) A few synonyms for abandonment include desertion, neglect, stranding, betrayal. Abandonment comes in many forms and in varying degrees of potency. My first experience of abandonment can best be described through the lens of mild neglect. I emphasize mild. It was mild neglect. I had an older brother who was eight, and I was six, and for the first six years of my life, I was the baby. Any babies in the room? Yes, babies, you are loved. You are seen. You are held. I was the apple of my mother's eye. I was the center of it all. I could see it. I felt it. And then my parents began adopting two little sisters. A few years later, a little brother and a little sister. A few years later, another little sister. A few years later, two more little sisters. If you're doing the math, that's six sisters and two brothers. Uh, To this day, my parents like to joke with my dad. So you had two boys, and then you got to choose, and you chose six girls. (laughs) But in a moment, I went from baby to second from the top. And over the years, I elevated up, way, way up in the family order. Throughout these same years, my parents also opened our home for foster care and shelter care. Foster care was longer-term care for a child that lasted anywhere from a month or so up to years. And shelter care is like a transitional care, uh, up to two weeks until a child gets placed into foster care. So all of this, these adoptions and these kids, it was all happening at the same time. Our home, you could say, was filled with flesh. (laughs) Filled with glorious, needy, holy, hurting flesh. I refer to this as mild neglect because I wasn't neglected, like I was fed and clothed and I was loved deeply. But from six years old and on, I could feel the change. I mean, at that age, I couldn't have had words to describe it. I couldn't have named it. I couldn't really talk about it. But it was a cataclysmic shift in my home life by necessity. And as I've grown and been in therapy and looked back over my life, I've come to realize that this was the beginning of me beginning to work really, really hard, which is code for I became really, really annoying. <laughs> in my younger years, I became annoying, loud, big, I think, in order to try and be seen by and held by my parents' gaze. I mean, I would just do anything to have them see me. If you're familiar with the Enneagram, it's an assessment with nine numbers. Each number represents a particular kind of human traits and proclivities. And and one influence, like one really important influence on the number that we become is based on some kind of pain or sorrow or trauma that we experience during our younger years. And I think that's when I started to become a really unhealthy three. An unhealthy three needs to be seen desperately. Desperately. An unhealthy three will become almost anything to be seen. You value success, I can be successful. You value kindness, I can be kind. You value loyalty, I will show you loyalty. On and on it goes. Unhealthy threes become experts at assessing what is wanted and we become just that. Just like a chameleon. Our fatal blow is that without healing and movement toward health, we live our entire lives being what we think others need us to be so that they will see us. I tell you all of this because any kind of pain, sorrow, trauma, like abandonment, has the potential to create unhealth in our lives. As I've shared, my abandonment was mild neglect, but there are certainly people in this room who have experienced severe neglect similar to many of my adopted siblings. And there are certainly people in this room who have experienced anywhere from mild to severe desertion, mild to severe stranding, mild to severe betrayal. All forms of abandonment that have sincere impact on our lives. From her book, Changing Course, Healing from Loss, Abandonment, and Fear, psychologist Dr. Claudia Black addresses some of the negative effects of physical and emotional abandonment. She explains, physical abandonment can result in believing that the world is an unsafe place, that people are not to be trusted, and that they do not deserve positive attention and adequate care. Emotional abandonment can result in believing that we must hide parts of ourselves, which can be accompanied by thoughts such as, it's not okay to make a mistake, it's not okay for me to show my feelings, it's not okay for me to have needs. Everybody else's needs are more important than mine. To be clear, she explains that abandonment experiences are in no way indictments of a child's innate goodness or value. Instead she emphasizes that this simply reveals the flawed thinking and impaired behaviors and limitations of those who have abandoned us. But still, she writes, the wounds are stuck deep in young hearts and minds, and the very real pain can still be felt today. About this, Dr. Black is imperative. The causes of abandonment need to be understood so that we can heal. Until that occurs, the pain will stay with us, becoming a driving force in our adult lives. Before jumping into Moses' experience of abandonment, I'd like to read that last part one more time. The causes of abandonment need to be understood so that we can heal. Until that occurs, the pain will stay with us, becoming a driving force in our adult lives. In this morning's reading from the Hebrew Scriptures, we heard the beginning of Moses' story. Now a man left the house of Levi, went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with tar and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The reason that this child's mother hid and then gave up her child was not her fault. Her limitation as a mom was forced upon her. If you remember the story, Pharaoh had commanded the massacre of all Hebrew babies, and she quite literally saved her baby's life by abandoning it. And yet to save her child, she could no longer raise her child. Now, listen to this part of the story. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her attendants walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said, yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse it for me. I will give you wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. This is best case scenario. The child's mother is miraculously chosen to nurse her very own baby. But the story continues. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and Pharaoh's daughter took him as her son. And she named him Moses because she said, I I drew him out of the water. Imagine that. Born, hidden, placed in a basket, and set on the bank of a river. Found by Pharaoh's daughter, who then pays the baby's mother to nurse it. And after the child grows, Pharaoh's daughter takes the child and names the child Moses. I drew him out of the water. That's his name. Moses, I drew him out of the water. Moses, you were left on the bank of the river. Moses, I'm not really your mom, but I'm your mom. The name itself a constant reminder of his severe stranding, a kind of abandonment marking him for the rest of his life. Now, if you grew up in the church, you probably heard this next story. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and saw their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his kinsfolk. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh. He settled in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. I remember this story so well as a child, and I was always told, I'm I'm curious if you were told this too if you grew up in the church, Moses had quite a temper. Do you remember hearing that? Moses had quite a temper. And we children were thoroughly warned, be careful. A temper is a bad, bad thing. If, If you don't control it, you could really harm someone. Careful with that temper. Of course, psychology in my evangelical 80s was not esteemed. (laughs) There was no Dr. Black to explain that Moses' abandonment needed to be understood so that he could heal. There was no Dr. Black to explain that until healing occurs, the pain will stay with Moses becoming a driving force in his adult life. And to be clear, not that I need to say it, Moses did a bad, a very bad thing, and murder is not okay, right? So let's get that out of the way. But anger, anger, well, anger is often a sign of something more, I think. Anger points down at something tender, perhaps so hot that we can't touch it. And so, anger. But down below, underneath the anger, is something sincere and real that must be faced, And it can be difficult to get to. It can be difficult to name, but down below, underneath the anger are often other tender and vulnerable feelings like pain or sorrow or fear or shame or guilt, all forms of disappointment. These are feelings birthed by difficult experiences that need to be explored. And anger, I think, points to the work that poet David White writes about. It has the potential to bring us to ground, to a firmer sense of ourself, to a surer sense of our world, and to what is good and possible for us in that world. Therapist Susan Anderson wrote a book titled, The Journey from Abandonment to Healing. In the book, Anderson explains a process that aligns with the 12-step program, but it's geared toward abandonment dynamics. And she breaks this process down into five large stages. Stage one, she calls it shattering. Shock, pain, panic. Suddenly, we find ourselves bereft in the world through abandonment. We are untethered. Stage two, withdrawal, we ache, we throb, we hurt, we move into ourselves alone. Stage three, internalizing, she refers to this as the critical stage of abandonment during which our wound is susceptible to infection. But it's in this very stage that we have the agency to choose what we want to do with it. This is an important and necessary stage, but we must thoughtfully move through it. Then stage four, which she calls rage. But I think a more helpful name could be righteous indignation. Because it's in this stage that we come to realize with conviction, that thing that happened to me was not okay. It wasn't okay. What happened was not my fault. I didn't deserve this. I have been terribly and tragically hurt. And finally, stage five, she calls lifting. Intervals of peace and newfound freedom as a result of our ongoing work through the first four stages. Now, yes, of course, this is an oversimplification of a long and arduous uh, uh, process, right? Depending on the severity of the abandonment. And yet, through intentional and quite often therapeutic support, a journey like this is capable of bringing us to ground, to a deeper sense of ourselves, a sure sense of our world, and to what is good and possible for us in this newfound world. For as the poet David White explains, disappointment is just the initial meeting with the frontier of an evolving life, an invitation. An invitation to what? What is my abandonment an invitation to? Several years ago, I was talking with a friend. I hadn't actually connected with him for about a year, and, and he had gone through a terrible divorce. It was really, really hard, hard for both sides. It was just the worst. He had been through therapy. He had been talking with friends. He had been going to therapy. He had been talking with friends. It was just this long, arduous, difficult process. And I asked him, how are, how are you doing? And he said, well, I still ache. I throb. I hurt. I hurt. It's not easy. But I'm starting to notice some new things in my life. And I said, like, like what? Like give, give me an example. And he, and he said, well, you know, earlier in my life, if I met somebody and they were to say that they were divorced, or if I had a friend and the friend said to me, I'm going through a divorce, it was like it, was like it went in one ear and it went out the other ear. It was just this word. It was just this idea. But now when somebody says the word divorce... Or I'm sitting in front of a person who says, I'm going through a divorce. It's as if my entire heart has opened up a new dimension that just wants to wrap itself around them and hold them in the pain that I myself have endured. And this resonates with me. I found something similar in my own life. As I've worked to heal and grow out of my unhealthy threeness, I've noticed an evolution from doing whatever I can to be seen. To finding compassionate delight in seeing. I love to see people in a way that feels unique to me. I love to look people in the eyes. I love to listen to stories. I love to be in a group of people and see the person who isn't being seen and to sit down and to see that person. It brings me a lot of joy. In our New Testament reading, we heard these words about Moses. When 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Sinai in the flame of a burning bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he approached to look, there came the voice of the Lord I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses began to tremble and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the mistreatment of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to rescue them. Come now, I will send you to Egypt. It's a good, it's a good story. The abandoned Moses. Moses drawn up out of the water. Moses left on a riverbank. Moses abandoned. Moses called to compelled to stand on what is called holy ground, shaped by his own journey, abandonment included. Moses is used by God to draw up Israel, to guide Israel, to feed Israel, to parent Israel. Yes, imperfect, as we'll see through the rest of his story, and at times temperamental, a sign that he was still on his own journey. And yet, yet, Moses became a parent who refused to abandon his children, Israel, through rough waters and wily wilderness for over four decades. It's an incredibly human story. I have no idea where you are in your journey as it relates to your own experiences of abandonment. Shattering, withdrawing, internalizing, righteous indignation, or this glorious experience of lifting. It's a path that we move through again and again as we slowly rise ever more from our experiences of abandonment. For as the poets and the psychologists and the sacred stories like Moses and so many of yours declare, we can, I truly believe we can heal. Our hearts, I truly believe that they can expand. And our wounded lives can be transfigured into incarnations of compassion in the very places that we ourselves were abandoned. For truly Lent, suffering, death, hold potential for Easter healing and life. We Christians call this the way of Jesus. May it be so, and let us pray. Lord, as we find ourselves in the wilderness, I pray and ask that there would be burning bush moments. Moments where we take off our shoes and we stand before you, ourselves, this life, and we open our arms and whisper in hushed tones, holy, hot, hot, but holy. moments of possibility. I pray and ask during this season of Lent that you would help us to face our very selves and to do such important work so that the driving force in us isn't anger or fear or abandonment, but a deep sense of being seen and held with with love by you.